Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, uh, like Ellen said before, I want to welcome you to as one of the pastors here. Thanks for uh, joining us on one of our gatherings uh, today. We, we are in the book of Philemon right now. If you want to turn on a Bible or a phone app you have into the New Testament, uh, right before the book of Hebrews, right after, shoot, what is it after? I forget. Second Timothy? I forget what's after. I'm actually, I think it's Titus actually, but it uh, could be Second Timothy as well for your bearings. But a small little book that we're going to... Um, not quite finished today, but preach the meat of. And so it's a very short um, 24, 25 verse letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a man named Philemon. I introduced it last week. If you want to catch up and weren't here, um, we have a, a podcast or it's on our website or, um, or a SoundCloud account if you uh, know how to get there. Uh, easy to find if you, uh, if you don't yet, but um, you can catch up that way. I will repeat some things. It is one of those letters that is... Um, all letters really require this on some level, but especially Philemon, understanding the main characters and what is going on in the letter almost itself kind of uh, preaches to us and consoles us and uh, shows us God's characteristics of just his sovereign love and, his, and how he chases us down. We'll talk more about that today, uh, but it's also important to understand so we don't kind of misread it. Uh, contextual stuff can be really helpful, but also kind of misguiding at, uh, at the same time. So, um, a couple things on that then, uh, Philemon, so some of the key people in the book, um, you'll, you'll see in terms of how the book begins and ends, there's actually a lot of people by name mentioned. These are the three key kind of players in the book though. Uh, the first is the Apostle Paul himself who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He was the guy who was a Christian murdering Jew who was converted. Uh, Jesus just saved him and, and converted him. He became this kind of prolific, uh, not just New Testament author, but prolific um, church planter as well throughout Asia Minor and, uh, and, and beyond. And so we read about that in the book of Acts, but this is the same guy. He is now currently in house arrest in Rome. If you're here for our series in the book of Acts, that's how that book ends. And so uh, Philemon kind of overlaps with Acts 28 in kind of this cool way as well. He wrote other letters uh, from that same uh, state of being in house arrest too, one of which was Colossians, which I'll mention uh, today as, uh, as, as well. Uh, Philemon, uh, of course, uh, the, the namesake of the book, he is a wealthy Colossian Christian. Colossae is a, a city in uh, Asia Minor who Paul converted on one of his missionary journey trips through that region years before this. So he's a convert of Paul's. He's a young Christian. And now he has a house church that meets in his house. He's, he probably has quite a, a large space, at least relative to other settings in, in, in town, uh, to host a lot of people, uh, and so he has a house church, and that's actually mentioned in the first couple of verses. Paul's writing this to them as well. So it's, not, it's, it's a letter directly to Philemon about Onesimus, I'll mention that here in a second, but he wants the whole house church to hear it, which says a lot right off the cuff, right? That, that this is a, a letter rich in theology, not just kind of contextual things about a relationship, which that's part of it, but he wants the theology in it to be heard by more than just Philemon. So kind of keep that in mind too, especially if you, weren't, if you weren't here last week. Then Onesimus, who I mentioned last week, but we're going to see uh, kind of enter the story today, is a bondservant of Philemon's, like um, under his employ, who stole from him, then fled to Rome, but who met Paul there and was converted to Christianity himself. And so it's this really kind of amazing story, just kind of, just saying that alone, it's just this amazing story of God's sovereignty, his care, his pursuit of sinners, very, very serendipitous. This is the point where you'd say, that just would never happen unless God uh, allowed it. It is the, the luckiest thing ever, or it is God's kind of sovereign, loving hand directing this thief, this sinner, 
running for his life, uh, and really ultimately running from God. I'll talk about that later. Um, but finding salvation through the preaching of Paul, finding Christ uh, through the consoling preaching of, of the gospel that, in this case, came through Paul in prison. So the occasion of the letter, this is important as well. We'll see, the, again, the meat or the, the center of the letter is today's sermon. We have one more next week dealing with some concluding thoughts. But the occasion that will mostly come up today is that Paul is writing back to Philemon, and they have love for each other. There's mutual love and respect there, especially kind of on Philemon's side of things. He, uh, I think in the letter, he actually says that Paul acknowledges, you actually owe me a lot because I'm the one who saved you, and so um, do this for me, and I'll get to that. Uh, but there's a lot of love and mutual respect there, uh, clout between these two. But Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, encouraging him to receive him back as a brother. So he uses the phrase more than a bondservant, but now as a brother. So kind of some status change stuff there. To reconcile with and forgive him in the spirit of the gospel. That's, that's basically what Philemon is right there. Again, it's a short book, so it doesn't take as much to summarize, but, but even so, that's basically what it is. Uh, Paul cares about a restoration of relationships. He cares about Christians forgiving one another. He cares about love in his churches. Massive theme, right, in the New Testament. Christians loving each other, and that being a premier kind of visual to church health and sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit in churches is love for other Christians. Even Christians you're at odds with. Maybe especially Christians you might consider your enemies or that, that you're at odds with or formerly enemies, that now you're siblings in Christ. And so a lot of family language is used here in this letter as well. So we'll talk more about that today. Uh, one comment, too, on Roman slavery. Uh, I mentioned this last week, so if you weren't here for this, this is an important contextual piece. Uh, one, just to kind of understand our historical bearings here with this issue, but two, not to be too misled into what the point of the letter is. Um, and so I, I put here kind of just by way of summary, even though Onesimus is a slave or bondservant, so some of your translations in English say bondservant, some say slave, it's the same Greek word uh, that essentially means servant. Um, even though he is a a slave or a bondservant of Philemon's, and even though Paul wants Onesimus to be received back, quote, as more than a slave or bondservant, the book isn't about, ultimately, physical emancipation. Uh, it is very likely that Onesimus went back to a job that he was paid for in Colossae and what that, that that wasn't ripped away from him. All right, so we know this for a lot of reasons, uh, some of which are as follows. One of which is because of how the book reads itself, and so we'll see that today. Uh, second is more of a historical commentary, which is that slavery in Roman culture was a more of a low-class job than how we view slavery today, uh, which is why many of our translations choose to translate bondservant and not um, a, a word that carries so much baggage for us like slavery, so not to kind of misguide and mislead as to what the issue was. So this, in turn, explains why Paul's not angry with Philemon here and why he's not demanding that Onesimus be emancipated or any other bondservants in the Colossian church, and there were probably many of them. Onesimus was very likely not the only bondservant in the Colossian church, and so it explains why Paul doesn't address him in that emancipation kind of manner, but also any of the others, uh, of which, again, there were likely very, very many. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is endorsing Roman slavery as the best way to order society, not at all, uh, or turning a blind eye to any evils it produced. But in the end, 
as we'll see clearly today, the gospel of Jesus Christ is his main point, not social status upheaval. The gospel underscores everything he's asking of Philemon. It's also embodied in Paul's actions and words. It's embodied in Onesimus' flight and return. We'll talk about that. And it's embodied in the role Philemon plays here in all this as well, which um, is sort of passive, but, but sort of not. So more on that as, as we go today. So with all that said, uh, today we're going to look at this theme of charge it to my account. Uh, Paul says, um, as we'll see, we'll read this here in a second, but Paul says to, um, it's part of this letter that he sends to Philemon, he wants any debt that Philemon thinks Onesimus owes him, Paul says, charge it to me. I'll pay the money. I'll pay, he's in prison, by the way, too, so it's kind of a big deal for him to say this. Charge it to my account. I'll pay the debt. I'll absorb the offense so you guys can have a fully reconciled relationship. All right, that's a, that, is, that is not the only thing going on here in this, in this uh, section of Philemon, but it's massive. And this characteristic of Paul's and, in a sense, of the Gospels comes up in many of Paul's letters as well. But it very uniquely and beautifully and very specifically with, very two, with two named people, which is really cool, who actually lived 2,000 years ago and actually had a relationship that was severed and broken and estranged. Uh, and then that came back together in and through the gospel, but not before Paul said this. All right, so with that in mind, uh, the heart of the letter today, here we go, Philemon 8 to 20, Paul speaking. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do you, or do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. All right, so here we go. We're first going to look at this theme today of forgiveness as a premier Christian virtue. This um, may uh, sound like it's uh, kind of, at least at face value, the main thing going on, and because that's, that's true. In one sense, this is what he's saying. He wants forgiveness to take place in a church, an actual instance of substantive forgiveness to take place between two at-odds parties. So that's what's happening, right? Paul's writing to a guy who's likely grieved or saddened or maybe maddened by being stolen from and wronged in this way. And if you guys have ever been stolen from, like if your car's been rifled through or you've been broken into in your house or your garage, 
Um, Alif and I have had all those things, I think, happen to at one point, which sounds like our neighborhood is just terrible, but it's not. We love our neighborhood, but um, it, that's, those are rare instances. But still, we've had, um, we've had all those. So uh, anyway, it, it, makes, it makes you feel violated, right? It, it makes you feel like there was someone right here in my car like hours ago, like taking my stuff and rifling through it and making a mess. Um, or like trying to break into my back door and, and they gave up and left. Or one time I saw footprints come from the alley right by my garage, right around to my service door, and then the door was kicked in and I'm like, this guy was just like taking a leisurely stroll down the alley and decided just to walk to my garage and, and kick it in. Just feelings of violation, right? And, and, uh, and on uh, Philemon's side of things, probably betrayal as well because you knew this guy and um, they had a relationship of some kind, right, before it was, before it was severed. But it's a hard spot. So try to like put yourself in Philemon's place, feelings-wise, because it helps kind of feel the, the power of what's being asked of him. Paul essentially appeals to him that he would receive the one who wronged him back, Onesimus, graciously with a type of brotherly forgiveness that gets at the core of the gospel. So this is key. Paul is nowhere in the letter saying, Onesimus will pay you back. Or saying to Philemon, ask him to pay you back when he gets there, right? Did you notice the glaring absence of this when we read it? If you didn't notice that, a, a glaring omission, a glaring absence of any kind of uh, recompense or, or payback. He's not advocating for some kind of compensatory act of payment or work here. No penance, no purgatory. He's asking Philemon to simply be wronged by him and then let it go, and then reconcile and view him as a family member in Christ. That's huge. Let it go. Be wronged by him. He's asking Philemon to kind of absorb this a bit. Be wronged. Don't, don't, uh, don't be absolved. Just be wronged, then, then reconcile and view him now as a brother in Christ, which is now, status-wise, I mean, that's who he is. Christians are brothers and sisters towards each other because we have the same father. All right, so, so the big question here is, uh, well, first, the big acknowledgement is that's easy to talk about, but really, really difficult to do, uh, especially from an enemy, especially from someone that's really harmed us. That's very difficult to absorb something and kind of take it upon ourselves and not kind of uh, seek out the, ven- like the Bible says, don't pursue vengeance. Vengeance is God's. But we really want that, right, sometimes. So the big question then on the heels of that is, Where does the ability to do this come from? Where does the ability to express and exude this kind of forgiveness actually come from? And to start to answer this, let me read from Colossians 3.13, which, remember, is the same audience as Philemon. So the same exact time the Colossian church is getting the, the letter written to Philemon to read to the whole church, so are they getting the book of Colossians at the exact same time. So these letters can and do speak to each other. Onesimus is mentioned at the end of Colossians by name as well. So, so we know this for a variety of reasons, but just try to have this in mind. This theology, this exhortation and encouragement uh, is, is certainly embedded within the narrative of, of Philemon as well. It's suggested more so in Philemon, um, even though it's stated, but here it's even more clear, and so we'll, we'll spend some time on this verse. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, It says, bear Christians with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you must also forgive. So a few things here that are very important to see. The big thing to start with is the correlation that, the, that interpersonal forgiveness has with divine forgiveness. Uh, as, as Jesus has forgiven us, he's saying through his shed blood, so we must also forgive each other in the church. To use the words from 1 John 4.19 slightly differently, we forgive because the Lord first forgave us. It's in the Lord's prayer as well, in Matthew 6, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See the relationship between those two things and how commonly they're talked about in unison? It's a very important theological idea to understand and relationship between terms to see. Yet there's one more layer to it. That we, that's where we start, but we add an additional layer here that maybe you already saw or know about, but it's, it, it's not as explicit here, and so we have to say it. Because some of these statements can make it sound like both sides of the forgiveness coin are equal. But biblically, and just in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. And, and that is, we have wronged God more than people have wronged us. And that's always true. No matter the offense that, and the harm that we're shown in life, we always show more, give more offense and more grief, or have given more offense and grief and sinned more against God than what people show to us. The Bible is, from almost every angle imaginable, just crystal clear on this. And it's actually that there's power within that to kind of provide a right motive and not always a joy, but a desire to forgive and a possibility to forgive that otherwise wouldn't be there. There's a power in it. Luke 7, uh, 47, this is Jesus speaking here, and he's talking about this woman, and he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And so the correlation here is between forgiveness and love, but it's the same thing. Just the idea that the bigger we feel that we are absolved of our sins or forgiven our sins by, by God, the easier it is to forgive people for lesser offenses. And they're always lesser. And we can feel this on a human level as well, right? If we're um, forgiven by someone for the same or a larger offense, it's easier to forgive people. This is great marriage advice, by the way, uh, if you're... Married or engaged or going to be married someday, um, tuck this away. Uh, it is, you know, when you're harmed by your spouse or hurt in some way, that what will enable you to forgive is the, the realization, I have done the same thing to her. I've done the same thing to him. I actually, or I've done worse things and she's forgiven me. Or, or, on top of that then, I've done worse things to God and he's forgiven me through Jesus. That, that is the, in one sense, like the only thing that will, I mean, the church is the most forgiving, should be, the most forgiving, like, people uh, on, on the planet because we have this reality that, that's backing our calls to forgive and empowering our calls to forgive. The Bible never commands forgiveness alone, then, as if it's like a moral or a law. It always anchors it in the gospel. And so the more we think about our sin and Jesus on that cross, atoning for it in love, the more forgiving will it be of lesser offenses done to us by other people. That, that's the idea. So in Philemon's case, then, a guy stole from him. A guy ripped him off. But the idea, bringing Colossians 3.13 into it, the idea is 
Philemon, though, had sinned much more against God than Onesimus did against Philemon. And Philemon, as a Christian now, was forgiven that great offense. A lifetime of sins. And so Paul's encouragement is, forgive Onesimus in light of this greater spiritual reality. And, and, And that's the idea. It is impossible to forgive people if we think we're better than them. It's impossible to forgive people if you think you're better and you haven't done the same thing to them that you're a more moral person, that you never have done that offense towards that, that person or others, or that you haven't, we don't have this kind of debt, this great chasm between us, like that song we just sang, uh, a mountain we can't climb, uh, a debt we can't pay before God that's been erased. Like, it's impossible to forgive. It's, it's impossible. We just can't do it. And so the encouragement here then is, so it is for us. At Hiawatha Church, so it is for us just by name in this room, if we're Christians, that we have to anchor, be a forgiving community, but anchor it in the gospel. So when it says must forgive here, this isn't a threat. Uh, You know, in in Philemon, you maybe caught this, but the way the section today began was, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to to receive Onesimus back in this manner, but I'm not going to command you. I'm going to appeal in love. Isn't that a cool like difference there? It's, it's sort of like that. The, the, the must forgive is not a threat. It is an appeal. It is in Colossians, again, same audience, Paul saying, really by saying must, he's saying we must understand the gospel. Because to not forgive lesser offenses is to say with our actions we don't believe we've been forgiven, forgiven greater offenses, which is to say then that we don't believe that Jesus died for our sins and through that forgave us. As Ellen read right here a few minutes ago, that from Ephesians 1, I think it was, right, that we have forgiveness in his blood. The way God forgives is dying for our sins. The way he absorbs the, the, the pain or the cost and absolves us is through blood. It's not just by saying it. That's it, crucial Christian theology to see. The way God ushers in forgiveness is by having his son die for us. So, we need to think about this. This is, on one level, what Philemon's saying. We must forgive. If you're a Christian, you must forgive. If, as a church, Hiawatha Church, we must forgive each other. We must. We have to have this trait. And to do that, though, we need to drink deeply of the bloody cross and do the uncomfortable, humbling work of talking highly of our sin, but even higher than that, of the grace of Jesus Christ, which is always stronger than, than all of our sins. And so what I want to do is spend the rest of our time doing that, basically drinking deeply of the gospel through the lens of Philemon 8 to 20. And we, we did this last week a little bit um, from a slightly different angle, and, and I wanted to kind of prepare you last week in that, in that if you were here for that, you know what I'm talking about, uh, for what we're going to do today, um, because there's a lot more going on in Philemon than meets the eye. Everything we said is rich, good, practical theology. Uh, and yet there's so much more than, than meets the eye here. Philemon is like simultaneously, and a lot of Paul's letters do this, simultaneously a historical letter from a guy to a guy about a guy, but it's also a spiritual metaphor. And it can be this because God wrote it ultimately. Uh, that, that song we sang, first service I was thinking of this um, about Philemon, like that song Mighty Power we sang earlier, which says, 
Lord, how thy wonders are displayed wherever I turn my eyes. Um, We should apply that way of thinking in song to the scriptures too, not just mountains and skies and birds, but to the Bible. Wherever we turn, whatever text we're in, whatever book, whatever theme, whatever event, whatever psalm, the wonders of the gospel are there. Wherever we turn our eyes, Not, not a moral lesson, but the wonders of the gospel, not the wonders of a law, but the wonders of a grace that pour off from the page uh, sometimes in a very beautiful, suggestive, moon-like, reflecting the light of the sun in symbolic manner. All right, so let's do that now. Um, We'll start with Onesimus. So going back to the question of who he is, the role he plays in this story uh, is very reminiscent of us. All right, so we'll, we'll start with this divine side of Philemon 8.20. All of redemptive history, all, the story of redemp, re, the redemption, the salvation of sinners in, in 13 verses, starting with uh, the character of Onesimus. Onesimus is like us. We too are bondservants who have sinned against our master, right? Isn't that our story? Which makes Philemon here a picture of God, so keep that in mind as we go. But the idea here is that we have, we have also run away from God. We have gone our own way, like sheep wandering astray, like the prodigal son who also stole from his father, right? Very similar story. Like Jonah running from God and as ones exiled from the Garden of Eden. Separation here between Onesimus and Philemon, between two estranged, at-odds parties, whispers to us a greater story, the exile that sinners like us all experience from God. We are, to borrow language from verse 15, parted from God. We are not where he is. We can't see him. It's, there's, there's silence. There's separation. There's hell on earth experiences. We are in the desert. We are cast out of the garden. We are parted uh, from our loving God and our creator. All right, which then makes Paul a lot like Jesus. And there's a a number of ways we see this here, multiple levels, and I'll explain five of them. There are more, but here's five of the big ones. First, Paul is the one who saves Philemon, right? Christ through him, but Paul's the conduit. Paul converts Onesimus to Christianity. So right off the bat, he plays the role of a savior figure in this short narrative and letter. Then second, Paul uses the phrase, became a father to him. Uh, but that's, that's actually translated from a phrase that literally says, I gave birth to him. So Paul gave birth to Onesimus, which is a, a really odd thing on a physical level, right? Maybe even disturbing. But on a spiritual level, it makes all the sense in the world. Because through Christ, we are reborn. Through Christ, we are remade. Through Christ, we are created. Through Christ, there's a status change from slave to sons and daughters. And that's exactly what's happening to Onesimus. He's he's moving from bondservant to now being called brother. Just like as Christians, when we're saved from our sins, we move from, Galatians 3 and 4 talks about this, slave or servant to adopted son and daughter. Onesimus' story is precisely our story when you think about how his status changed before Philemon, who was a picture of God. All right, the third thing is that Paul's advocacy for Onesimus and appeal to Philemon is the thing that ensures the reconciliation, not 
the commandments, not law-keeping, not morality, or uh, any of Onesimus' other works. This is huge. This is precisely, again, what happens when a, a sinner comes to God through Jesus Christ. It is the appeal of Christ. It is the advocacy of Jesus Christ that saves us, not our works. I mentioned this before, but again, remember that there is no mention of Onesimus needing to repay Philemon here or to work extra hard to win back his trust. That's gloriously absent. And so if the, the, theo- the rich theology in this is, if that's true here, how much more is that true for us? That as sinners, there's no expectation to pay God back or to win his trust back. He, be, he is a father to us, not an employer. All right? So there's a shift taking place uh, here that's very important to see. And in fact, the point of emphasis that's even harder to see that I want to spend a couple of minutes on is that Paul and Philemon have love for each other. That's a huge thing to see here as well. There's, we're kind of in the, in the deep theology here, the deep magic, if you've read Narnia. This is deep magic time. Uh, the, the deep theology is that Paul and Philemon have clout. They have respect for each other. They have a deep love for each other. And think how reassuring that would have been for Onesimus to know that. Onesimus is going back, probably fearing for his life and a terrible life back where he came from. Because what if he doesn't do what, what Paul's asking, right? But what, what he would bank on is that Philemon and Paul love each other. So he's going back on the basis of the advocacy of one Philemon deeply loves, deeply loves. See how reassuring that would be? Not just anybody, not a Christian teacher, not Paul saying this is the right way to do it, but someone that saved him, someone that loves him. And, and here's the thing. Translate, cross this over then into the, into the realm of the, of, of the spiritual theology. It's the same with Jesus and God. You know, going back to this idea, it's Christ's love for the Father, the Son's love for the Father, God, and the Father's love for the Son, Jesus, that becomes this basis for our assurance. Mix that with Jesus' advocacy for us before the Father, and this should be one of the most reassuring things in the universe for us as sinners. You know, when the, when the Bible is at pains to show how much the Father loves the Son, you ever read this before, like in the Gospel of John? How Jesus says, the Father loves the Son, or, or the John the, the author writes this, but Jesus himself says this, I love the Father and the Father loves me, and John writes it, that the Father deeply loves the Son, and the Son wants to obey the Father to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. When you see language like that, have you ever wondered, why is that there? Why should I really care? That's, that's the cynical side. But, but really, right? I mean, what, what is that doing for me? What that should do for you, Christian, is assure that you will be saved in the end because Christ's advocacy for you is on the basis of him being the Son of God. So the one that God loves the most, Jesus, is backing you, is becoming like you to die for you, is washing you. So when Christ puts his arm around us and says, God, Father, they're okay. I've become like them to advocate for them and to bridge the gap between you and me and to make them a part of, a part of the family of God. That's coming from the one God loves the most 
in the universe, his son, not just anybody. Do you see the difference? This is why this matters. And this is what Philemon actually means. This is what's being represented. We're seeing the Trinity talk to each other uh, play out in this beautiful letter um, behind the scenes. All right? So Jesus says that to God, his Father. I've washed them. I've loved them with a type of love that you and I have for each other. And then more than that, the fourth layer, his advocacy also says, I've died for them. So not just... I have their back, and not just I'm being an advocate, and he's called that, by the way, in the book of 1 John, Jesus is our advocate, just like Paul is here. His advocacy says, I've died for them, when he puts his arm around us. He's not saying, I'm advocating for them I'm, as though I'm celebrating them or acknowledging what they've done, saying, God, maybe you missed what they did over here at the food shelf last week, so now you should accept them. That's not the kind of advocacy he's talking about. He's saying, I'm advocating as one who's died for them. And so they're now pure. And so now, Father, see my righteousness around them like a robe. See my purity around them like, like a robe. And we see this uh, play out in Paul's willingness to pay Onesimus' debt. This is one of the, most cl- the, the clearest places you see the gospel in the book of Philemon, is Paul's willingness to pay all every single last penny of Onesimus' debt from verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to, to my account. This is the gospel. A paying of a debt. The debt of a thief. The debt of a sinner. The debt of a slave. So Colossians 2.14, I don't have this on screen but I encourage you to look it up at some point or if you want to. Write this down. Colossians 2.14 for context. And remember, same letter, uh, or same audience, right? Different letter, but same audience. Getting, getting this letter at the same time as Philemon. So they would have had Philemon in their left hand and Colossians in their right, and they would have seen these correlations. But Colossians 2.14 says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. So just as a bit of an aside, isn't that a beautiful, like, a a bit of teaching there for us on how to read the Bible? Like, think about having both these letters. On the one hand, in Philemon, they would have heard, Paul wants to pay Onesimus' debt. Then over here, they would have read, Jesus wants to pay every sinner's debt for life. How would they have accepted those? How would they have taken them both in? Obviously, as though one is a glimpse and one is a reality. As though Paul's payment of Onesimus' debt, same language used for Jesus paying our spiritual debt. This is how we should read the Bible. As though these glimpses, these physical instances, these moon-like passages reflect the greater light of the sun ones. In this case, the sun passage, the more explicit, clear one, is Colossians 2.14. And then the words, if he has wronged you at all, all of a sudden become more theologically important for us because this is not, this is not just the words of a guy to a guy, about a guy. But it's Jesus' gospel words before the Father, and it means, so highlight the, highlight the words at all in your mind for a second. Theologically, this means if Paul's a Christ figure, 
that nothing we've ever done is too big for God's grace. Nothing. Everything we've done, Jesus desires to atone for. If, if we're getting a hint of Jesus' words here in Paul, Jesus also says to sinners like us before the Father, I will repay everything. If they've done every, anything at all, I will repay. Charge it to me. Lay it on my bloody body. Let me atone for it. Let me experience the, the hellish separation from you for it so exile can be ended and people can be restored and forgiven and, and reconciled to, to, their, to you, Father, to their creator. These are the words of Christ. And so part, partly then when, when it says that Paul wrote this, all of this with his own hands, and by the way, when he says that, he's in prison, so... Um, it's still house arrest, but still is, there's probably an instance where he, in a lot of his letters he says this, where he's having a scribe write the letter. And so he's speaking it, someone else is writing. But at this point, he says, give me that scroll. I want to write this. And so as I, Paul, I'm writing this now with my own hand. This is this, that important. I will repay it. And he gives the scroll back. Right? See my See my, my style of writing? See that it's my hand? See with what big letters I write? He says in another one of his letters. See the, the point of emphasis here? See how important that word, I will repay it, is for Christian theology? It's the same with Christ. Because with Jesus, it's the works of his hands that save us, not ours. It's the works of his nail-pierced hands that save us, not the works of ours before a holy God. So now we can have confidence that we can be received back to God forever, like Onesimus was said to be received back by Philemon forever, and not just temporarily. All right. So what are we left with here? Um, this is, there's a lot more to say about Philemon. We'll talk some more next week. This is the heart of the letter. This is what it's about. When we uh, ask the question, as we always should, about a text, what does this mean? You know, the, the answer to a book like Philemon is, uh, it's multifaceted. I did this last week as well, but when we, like, we hold up a letter like this and when we read it, we let it speak to us. We're confronted by it. When we ask the question, what are we left with? On one level, we should be left with this call to forgive. And we should underline the word must in Colossians 3.13, and we should think about what promotes an enemy-type love, an enemy-type forgiveness. Where does that come from? And we should think about the type of community and culture we have the power to create here when we do bear with one another's burdens, bear up with people who rub us the wrong way and who hurt us. How do we express that type of forgiveness? That's the one level. At the same time, we should dig deeper and look closer and see the story of Jesus Christ himself play out here through Paul. And see the story of every sinner who's ever lived on the planet, including us, play out through Onesimus. And see the story of God the Father play out through Philemon. And, and ask the question, what is the gospel again? Oh, that's right. It's about Christ advocating for me, not about my works. It's about the love that the Father has for the Son, not about how great I love God and about how much they both love me and the Holy Spirit loves me and, and you, not how much I've welled up love within my heart to love him. 
Where's the talk of Onesimus' love here of, of Philemon or of Paul? It's about the father and the son loving each other and about the son's obedience to go to the cross and about the, the desire of the father to be reconciled to his, to his enemies that's, that's in play. And so when we ask these questions, we're, we're left with a gospel, and I'm going to use some Philemon words here, that demanded the suffering of a substitute, a debt payer. At the center of the gospel is the pain of a debt that we owe, that we can't pay off. At the center of the gospel is advocacy. Jesus who became human saying, I've got them, I love them. You know, saying with his nail-pierced, blood-spilt body on that cross, like to his father, like saying basically this, see, father, my hands, see my side, see my body, considerate payment for them. See, Father, they have been separated for us for a time, but now through my cruciform appeal, we are able to have them back forever. And now the fact that they've been separated for a while, and now that they're back, it's almost better. That that is a, a beautiful piece to this too that we don't have time to talk about today, but in verse, I think it's 15, where it says, now maybe this is why that Onesimus was separated for a while. So now he could be brought back forever. And now the bringing back is greater than if he was, was never separated. So the appeal of Christ is the key. The advocacy of our Savior for you and me. This is what God wants us to hear calling out to us in this book. Him saying to us, love. Seeing how like Onesimus, we're not asked to pay him back for our sins. So stop trying. But instead, seeing the Father and the Son scheme for our salvation, rejoice over our return, and accomplish the forgiveness of our sins. That is the hope of salvation and the only hope we have to truly enable us to love others, even our enemies, as Jesus commands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book uh, that is um, sweet, uh, that is, in some sense, problematic in how it holds up our flight from you, our sin that we've stolen from you. We are thieves. We have robbed you of your glory, God, and yet you pursue us. Yet your hand remains sovereign over our life to, to see Christ and to believe that he died for us and to be saved by grace. And that's so many people's stories in this room. We are Onesimus. That just, we, that we have the exact same story. We are the prodigal. We are Jonah. We are Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, it, it's, the Bible shares this story on repeat, uh, and Onesimus is kind of the one final iteration of it, at least as it's written in the Bible. Separation from God, but reunification with God through the payment of a debt that doesn't come from us but by the hands of another, in this case, Jesus. So thank you, Father, for paying our debt. Thank you for loving us to hell and back. Thank you that we're saved by grace, not by works, as is the core of the message, not just the power behind forgiveness, but the actual symbolic message of Philemon as well, uh, to see and savior, savor Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the love that you not only had within the Trinity, but the love that you poured out from that triune relationship uh, towards sinners like us, that we might share in it and drink it and have it cover our sins. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
Amen. Please stand again as we respond together with these songs. Sinners plunge beneath that flood. 